0: Welcome to The New Disruptors. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, and this is episode number three fresh from the first drop. You can buy coffee across a huge spectrum of quality, price, and availability. Do you want free trade, shade grown, light roast, or Folgers Instant, or Starbucks Instant? Do you want something that was processed through the alimentary canal of a civet to improve the taste, and which now costs $400 a pound? Or do you just want something consistent and good? Tony Konexny, better known as Tonks, T-O-N-X, has been sourcing and roasting beans for a number of years and recently founded Tonks Coffee at Tonks, T-O-N-X, dot O-R-G, a subscription service that delivers whole beans from small batch roasting every two weeks. It's not a bean of the month club. It's a way to bypass the overchoice that one can face in specialty coffee shops and get the assurance that the beans are fresh and good every time. Tonk's Coffee fits squarely in the new disruptor's mission. It's a small group of people, starting with a strong vision, intending to grow at a sustainable pace, using a variety of technological tools at their disposal, from inexpensive hosting to virally spread word of mouth, even to better options for credit card processing. I talked recently to Tonks and his e-commerce guru, Nick Bauman, about the joys of coffee and the joys of starting a business in which you can talk directly to your customers without anyone else getting in the way. There's a brief interlude in which my friend Jeff Carlson and I have a little Tonks tasting, too. I'm talking today with Tony Kanesny and Nick Bauman of Tonks, a kind of, uh, I don't want to say artisanal, artisanal is so past, right? It's well-curated, well-made coffee subscription service that arises out of many, many years of experience in thinking about how to roast coffee and get it to people. Hi, guys. Howdy. Great to have you here. Tony, somehow everybody on the internet knows you. I I mentioned (laughs) that you were working at Victrola in Seattle, Victrola is it coffee and roasters or coffee and art? Uh, yeah, coffee and art. Uh, I think it's yeah, now um,
1: <laughs> coffee roasters officially.
0: It was a funny story too because I got a colleague said, "Hey, you should go talk to Victrola because they're turning Wi-Fi off on the weekends. They have too many table squatters." And like this 2005, I think. So I went there and had my first cupping with you in the back where you were roasting. I'd never seen a cu- I had no idea what it was. Went to cupping. I'm like, wow, these guys are doing fun stuff. And then I wrote my New York Times piece about the Wi-Fi part. <laughs> which of course the owners were like, "We're really about coffee. The, the Wi-Fi thing is all right. That's fine." But you know, got some attention. And, I think a Bulgarian newspaper ripped off my story, and it was up in the store. And then, you know, so some time goes by, I follow your blog, and then suddenly, like, over time I discover everyone I know and follow on the internet seems to know you, has some connection with you. There's a Los Angeles connection there, too, but you have a really passionate and long-term interest in coffee, it seems, and
1: that, that seems to have brought a crowd of people who want to listen to what you have to say about it. I was kind of an early adopter of social media and what may have been the first coffee blog out there. I think there's now hundreds, <laughs> or at least my RSS reader tells me that there's hundreds of them. Yeah, it was just sort of a chance for me to talk about what I was trying to figure out because I, I fell into coffee as a consumer intentionally and sort of as a career accidentally. And, and I've always tried to keep one foot in the in the consumer mindset there because I think there's a lot about what's happening in coffee that's kind of confusing for for people and i've always tried to maintain a voice uh, around it. it gives people some cheat codes a little bit because i think a lot of what we talk about kind of in the in the industry echo chamber doesn't doesn't really resonate with people that don't that don't work behind the curtains. So.
0: That's not true in any other industry. Right? <laughs> yes, the right, echo, of course. The echo chamber. <laughs> you say in your fact here, you apologize for being a first coffee blogger, but there's this attitude, I think, that their obsessiveness arose about food and things we drank and whatever. People got so far down the rabbit hole. And I mean, there's, there's connoisseurship and there's sophistication and then there's the things that you either you can't really differentiate or it just reaches a level of pretension that you don't care. It seems like you guys eschew that you've got a simple approach tell me what your subscription approach is for for um, the business how do I get coffee from you guys kind of our, our
1: model comes out of this I would say like a, a our first order premise is that there's there's a lot of confusion out there about like great coffee there's definitely a hype cycle around it you can you know read about the latest coffee bar opening in the New York Times it, it tends to get a lot of attention but people's sort of path from being you know, kind of an enthusiastic consumer to becoming a connoisseur is a little difficult to figure out. There's a lot of buy-in that happens when you stand in line at a fancy coffee bar and you've got baristas that are dressed up and they kind of want to sell you on the premise of what they're doing is special and kind of different in the marketplace. And you know what? What we've seen over the last few years, and and I feel like I've been a little bit responsible for in my in my career as well, is that. Consumers tend to focus a lot on how to brew coffee and and sort of the the equipment tends to get the attention, whether it's $18,000 espresso machine or or those clover brewers or, you know, whatever the kind of latest fad imported Japanese hand-blown glass thing is or something. And, And so so kind of coffee snobbery as it's appeared has been really more about gadget fetishism and kind of a lot of fetishizing the craft of, of roasting or a barista and um, and not really about the product itself and I think we look at kind of big picture like what craft beer has done over the last decade where 10 years ago being a beer snob was like a real thing and I think today the bar is set so high that to be a beer snob, you would sort of have to almost work in the beer industry that your average consumer like gets what great beer is. You can find craft beer on the shelf at you know any store in the country and and it's just kind of an accepted thing and people are willing to pay a price premium for it and i feel like in coffee we haven't really achieved that we've cloaked the reality of what good coffee is behind a lot of these kind of pretenses that the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of artisan craft you know all of these sort of familiar culinary tropes and and as an industry, we've been looking to the culinary world for validation for what we're doing for a few years, because we've always felt like a bit of a stepchild in the food universe. So so I think there's there's kind of this missing element of like, well, what what is like good coffee, really? Like, what makes a great cup of coffee? And um,
0: Well, hasn't that been, I mean, that's partly been the Starbucks battle, too, right? Is that Starbucks popularized a really dark taste that was almost burned and got people used to something that you almost had to ignore the coffee because you didn't like the way it tasted right and i mean they, they set this new trend that like darker bitterer whatever and you have to throw all this milk in it it was this whole i mean it was almost even from their beginnings as with an authentic small coffee store it seems like they set a trend that was actually sort of you know ignore the product you got to bury it in other stuff so you can hide the taste too I'm,
1: i mean i think it's it's kind of easy to say that you know looking back on it through like the modern eyes when we see what coffee has become today but I would say that, you know, for their time and for kind of the era that they came out of, they pushed the envelope and they were paying good prices to coffee farmers. And they were part of a progress, I think, before Starbucks. uh, Most of America was drinking sort of pre-ground Folgers out of a can or Maxwell House or... So there's definitely more positive than negative that's that's happened on account of Starbucks, but I think that what we've kind of seen or what you know what I sort of stumbled into once I became a part of the coffee industry was that there's this whole world of uh sort of single farm single estate single origin coffees that have all these really unique flavors and a prettiness and a sweetness and a balance that you just don't get out of like the big bulk blended commodity coffee that gets you know imported by these these large multinational companies. And and finding some way to like reveal that to consumers has been the the driving thing for me in terms of falling deeper into the industry. And and the micro roaster movement has done a good job of that. But I think that the sort of underlying premise, people still walk into a coffee shop and they're going there for a hundred (laughs) reasons in addition to whether or not the coffee's good. And there's sort of a disconnect there between moving the ball on the product side and, and the experience that you know because of Starbucks and all these other established things that people come to expect with uh, with a retail environment and the economics of a coffee bar are are not that attractive either so you know some of the shops that are really doing the best stuff are, are kind of hanging by a thread when it comes to staying in business or paying their people so you have this generation of roasters and baristas that are really dedicated to this craft but from a business perspective it, it's not a job you could necessarily count on having for many years or build a career on or have health benefits or get married buy a house raise kids <laughs> on it's oh, it's, that, it. it's funny it's
0: you're, you're happy that people start restaurants coffee shops and supermarkets but you never understand why they actually do because the the economics are so rough in those fields
1: yeah and it's weird and coffee in particular and i think part of this is like a not to go off on a tangent but i'll I'll give you a tangent the big fair trade push in the 90s and early 2000s sort of gave people this sense that oh well someone's paying you know three dollars for a latte you know how much is the coffee farmer getting out of that it's just pennies and and there's kind of a an armchair like lemonade stand economic analysis that I think people are very comfortable applying when they see a line at a coffee shop. They think, you know, this was the case for us at, at Victrola. I think probably when you came in there, we, we were running that shop with a line to the sidewalk. And, you know, it was one of the busier shops in Seattle. And people just assume that this is a business that's making a killing. And the reality is you're selling a 2 or $3 product. It doesn't matter if you've got a 200% markup or a 400% markup or a 4,000% markup. You're really just putting, you know, a buck or two in the cash register for every person that comes in line and you know when you start to talk about a business that requires you know 15, 20 people to operate and you know is open, 17 hours a day and has to pay rent and utilities and has a raw material that actually doesn't have a very good margin <laughs> is expensive is hard to get right and it's not a very forgiving business and you're giving me a perfect segue into the okay so the coffee shops it's
0: a it's a brutal industry the coffee shop world as, as we know and uh, and it's a hard thing to make a living in but you know one of the reasons coffee shops exist I think it's there are all those uh, there's 200 reasons you're talking about that people go in there is that there's a lot of reasons why someone goes in social or it's not convenient or they just whatever don't want to bother but there's also that issue of how you make a good cup of coffee or you make a good espresso that you need a certain level of equipment to make something that brings out the best of the bean and then there's the fetishism part of it too but i I was reminded of this when i was reading mark Frauenfelder's book uh, made by hand that came out i think last year it's a delightful book about his very honest discovery path to doing things for himself raising chickens and making stuff and and he talks in it about retrofitting a coffee and i've forgotten the model of coffee maker of course you probably know it's one <laughs> one that has a. Uh, temperature-based control that's got a simple sort of on-off thing, so as the boiler goes up in in temperature, it clicks off and on, but it doesn't keep a very consistent temperature, and there's a kit, kit or you can get someone to modify it for you, so this system doesn't cost that much as hundreds of dollars, I think, and then you can spend a bit more, but not thousands, to get a kit that puts a precise temperature control on it, and the difference for him was between pulling mud out of of his espresso machine that really he didn't like the taste at all, to something that was actually pretty consistent, and wasn't as good as we could get in a coffee shop but he, it got him to a level where he was satisfied with the result and he could modify very few variables to tweak it and get it to taste more the way he likes and it seems like that's one of the gaps is having sufficient control at home without going overboard and spending, you know, $10,000 for a home system or 5,000. But the other end of that seems to be something like the AeroPress, which I have and I kind of I kind of love. It's not perfect, but I sort of love it too. How how does that affect that relationship between people's consumption of coffee and their interest in the bean and the necessity or utility of coffee shops
1: and when you're talking about doing espresso at home that's definitely like a huge rabbit hole and i mean (laughs) even if you're willing to spend you know 10 or 15 grand on it there's still like you can buy the best commercial grade equipment and it's still going to be this process of endless optimization before you get anything close to perfection and that's just kind of the nature of espresso and there's something about busy coffee bar where if you're working a commercial espresso machine and you're pulling shot after shot after shot you just you get dialed in in a way that walking into a cold machine in someone's kitchen to make your morning coffee you're just you're never going to get that regardless of how much energy you put into temperature stability or I realized years ago I think I bought a $200 machine and
0: then was involved with some other people buying a $600 machine for an office and after we spent $600 I realized Oh, this is hopeless. Like if I really like either I'm going to learn to like a different way of making it or find a different way to make it that I like that I can do myself or I'm going to get my coffee when I really want good coffee. I'm just going to go to a shop that makes it pulls it the way I like or that brews it the way I like because I am not spending two grand, five grand (laughs) cream because it is not my life is not worth it
1: yeah well i think this is this is part of what's a, a little weird in the coffee industry is that there's probably a lot more money to be made in selling coffee brewers than there is in selling beans oh so gosh, of course so there's, right. there's so much more marketing attention and and messaging and, and consumer obsession around like this gear that brews coffee i mean even like the little like k cup or nespresso machines you know start at like 80 bucks and it's just a hunk of plastic that plugs into the wall and spits out a little bit of hot water but but the amount of kind of marketing power behind that is is sort of hard to compete with so our underlying premise is that the real secret to great coffee is you start with really good beans up front you can use any one of a thousand different brew methods and if you follow a few basic rules about ratios and grinding fresh and and do just a little bit of trial and error on whatever your brew method is, you're going to arrive at something that's probably as good or better than anything that you could get in a, in a coffee bar. And that's been kind of our, our sales pitch with this. Um, and it's it's a little simple, but there there's definitely a certain kind of person, and, and I think all of us here are guilty of it too, who we want those tools to... to get better and you know we're never really going to be satisfied with the state of home espresso machines or grinders and that sort of engineering culture of uh of modifying your stuff is those people are really fit the core demographic of, of coffee nerds today. But I think that that's it's a subset of people who who really just want great coffee. And I think most of those people, have they dig in, they're like, how do I make a great cup of coffee at home? And you start to do searches online and you encounter endless forums and debates about temperature stability and espresso machines and flat burr versus conical burr grinders, or the whole thing seems like an impossible mission. We're trying to stand on a little soapbox and say, wait, like, take a step back, you know, start with good coffee, make sure it's fresh, grind it yourself. And then it's pretty much a just add water operation with whatever bells and whistles you want to play with.
0: Yeah, so Michael Pollan has that has that statement. It sounds like you're sort of echoing. It's like you want to eat simply, you don't want to eat too much that's, you know, too much meat. It sounds like you're saying the same thing on the coffee side is that there's too much focus on all the Folderol and whatever. And really you want a good cup of coffee, you want to grind it reasonably and and make it. And we should talk about the coffee side of things. So you've built a business here that lets people get coffee that may be difficult to get locally or be difficult for them to sort out. You're taking a lot of decision making out of the process for them, which is often a good thing. Choice can sometimes be paralyzing.
2: I can do a little bit on that. Before I met Tony, I was also kind of a coffee consumer. I was not a coffee professional and my background is in software and I was trying to get into coffee in a big way. I was trying to understand the landscape of brands who what was the objective quality behind a lot of these different roasters and and what was the how did people get into it and what I found was i was I was living in North Carolina and I didn't have many options and even the options that were there for me, it took me a long time to realize which ones were good, which ones were bad, not just based upon taste but based upon their their sourcing, their ability to, uh, to execute, and just generally the quality of product that they're able to, to create from the ground up. And so I felt like what we wanted to create was just a starting place. Subscription or no, we wanted to be the place that people could could know that they were getting something that was sourced by some of the best people in the industry and roasted really well and basically sweated over by people who are focused on people who are looking to get into coffee and people who are looking for the easiest way to get it into their home. So subscription just mapped really well because as five guys shipping coffee, we didn't want to focus on retail. We didn't want to focus Focus on a lot of overhead when it comes to our actual business. We just wanted to ship people beans.
0: The focus of this show is what are you doing now that maybe wouldn't, wouldn't have been possible a few years ago in terms of building something like this? I mean, subscription services rise and fall or live and die by being able to get a sufficient mass of people fast enough that you don't burn through whatever money you have before you reach the scale that you can have enough cash flow to keep buying as you grow. I mean, what? Was the process you went through? Uh, did you need to get
1: outside investment to start? Were you able to bootstrap this because of um, knowledge or or sourcing? We took a little bit of money from friends and family at the beginning. Definitely bootstrapped it, and it and in some ways we haven't fully left the garage in terms of our mentality about how <laughs> we run the business, which I think is is healthy. I think a lot of that is really just about choosing what you want to focus on. Some opportunities were dangled. Uh, In front of us early on that would have, I think, shifted our focus, but brought in a lot more money, (laughs) which for a young company is always tempting. But maintaining that focus on, you know, we want to do one thing really well for a type of customer that we think doesn't get served well by the other businesses that are doing really good coffee.
0: The funding part has been fascinating to me
1: because I think I went down the particular rabbit
0: hole I'm in, which is the bottom of this new Set of pieces that let people build businesses in ways they couldn't before, and I feel like you guys fit into a category of that because um, you know Kickstarter has enabled so many thousands of projects and. Products and you know what have you because it brought money in. Now you did a the old school Kickstarter was you go to friends and family, but that has been problematic in the past because you might not have been able to get enough money to get to the point where you reach sufficient uh, you know velocity to get the cash flows you're talking about. So what did you do to go between? The money you needed to get this thing up and running, to do the e-commerce side, to get the mechanics together, and to reach a point where you're going to continue doing it. I don't want to ask you about profitability and the like. What
1: took you from the old school crowdfunding into some kind of sustainable curve of growth? I think one of the big things is, is that there were a lot of rakes that we didn't have to step on because uh, <laughs> Nick had been through this before with another startup. Yeah. Um, so his e-commerce chops were big and and you know, we were able to kind of an inherit a lot of knowledge from, you know, from his experience. Um, so I think there, you know, especially in e-commerce, there's just so many things we could have done very, very wrong at the beginning. And certainly if I had tried to do this
2: without Nick, I think it would have been a disaster. So that's... uh Similarly, I wouldn't have tried to roast beans without Tony. <laughs> 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 We've set this company up for for basically us to always have choices. So we were always kind of planning and, and hedging our risk with you know the amount of money that we brought on from friends and family and when we were going to get to profitability or, or break even. And we have in our, our welcome email that we live and b- die by word of mouth. We're still in that phase of building this business around word of mouth largely and making sure that we're making people delighted to the degree that they're willing to, to share us with their friends.
0: And that seems like one of the big factors that's happened in all of the different, mm-hmm. uh, all the different parameters that we're in now is the word of mouth has become so much more important. Ten years ago, there were blogs, there were websites, there were a million sites that might have written about you because you're something new and interesting. There were some early social networks, but we were all talking. I mean, I was reading talks as <laughs> your blog, Tony, and so it wasn't like it didn't exist. Then sort of Facebook sort of came out and Twitter and whatever, but then I feel like a Flashpoint happen where it's not that social media lets you win or lose, but more like it is a necessary component and it adds fire to things like Kickstarter. A Kickstarter goes from zero to a million because of the word of mouth that can spread through so many different means, not just one path or pulling up the 10,000 names you been collecting on email for a mailing list about coffee for years, you can reach those people. Did, did that play into it? Did you have like a social media part that suddenly said, hey, this is, you know, we put this thing out and it went on Twitter and then we had a thousand subscriptions the next day or, or was that as big a part for you guys?
1: I mean, word of mouth is definitely big for us. But, you know, one of the things when I when I launched this was that I have this Twitter following and I have kind of an audience, but I felt for a number of years like my audience is kind of mostly people that are already in the coffee industry and i and i felt like when we launched this like we kind of wanted to do it a little quietly and a little soft and not build this hype around it that i think some of my colleagues who started coffee companies in recent years have have benefited a little bit from the hype we're not At this stage, looking to sell coffee to coffee bars or restaurants, and and sort of blowing our trumpet to that audience didn't feel like a the right way to step out of the garage with this. So we actually kind of tiptoed around social media in the beginning, and and I think we're still. I, I don't think that there's like some magic, you know, Facebook, Twitter, silver bullet. And and there's certain businesses that can scale really fast using those media, but for us, it's that coffee is this thing that people are interested. But they don't know how to approach, and there's a certain amount of peer validation that has to happen for somebody to make the leap and and explore a new coffee in what seems to be a very crowded and confusing marketplace. So that's uh word of mouth from our customers has really been the big driver for us that if we can put coffee into someone's hands and they really enjoy it and they're willing to you know, share it with friends or tweet about it. That does far better than anything that we could do, you know, buying ads or trying to game Facebook.
2: And I think that it does especially, like we we don't consider ourselves particularly good at social media. If anything else, we try to not use it in instances when there's a question about whether or not we should. We have seen, we have a free trial and that is something that we try to get coffee into people's hands before they actually commit to being our customer. That has actually worked through social media in a big way. This is really readily apparent when somebody like, for instance, Marco Armit decides to to, you know, give us his praise or say that he's trying us. Those people with audiences are definitely big drivers of growth for us. At the same time, we're very careful to make sure that we don't push it and we don't emphasize it it's something that we want to enable and something that we want to be there to support
0: you're allowing discovery aren't you like marco this is funny as the world turns around right? so my boss marco now at the, the <laughs> magazine that i'm working on right it uh, all comes back or or shenny at um boing boing she knows tony of course because everyone <laughs> you all know each other you aren't out pushing saying hey people i know in the media with blogs it's more like we have this thing and people discover it and there's a amplification of certain voices and you know like marcos or boing boing or daring fireball i don't know if john gruber's written you up yep you know he's a coffee nut and there's that secondary interest of a lot of people in food or beverage or whatever in addition to the technology so people come for the tech and they stay for the coffee but you weren't out recruiting those people it's those people found you they came across you or they follow tony or whatever and said wow, I've made this amazing discovery. Now I need to share it to my audience of 20,000 or a million.
2: Yeah, and that absolutely didn't happen before. I mean, we would have to go after traditional media outlets, and we would have to go after the New York Times, and we would have to go after a write-up that was in print. And, you know, thus far, most of our coverage is digital. I mean, we've, we've gotten some press coverage that's been in print, but, I mean, almost everything, almost every... Uh, ounce of growth that we've had that's been meaningful to our business has happened through through digital media. And so it it can't be ignored. There's so many businesses that have entire growth strategies, even sometimes pre-launch, you know, vaporware-ish type scenarios where there's an algorithm for for getting more recommendations on Twitter and and things of that nature. And we, we very strongly feel that our best shot at that type of thing is to go slower than those folks and to focus on making sure that when they get that box and they get the physical experience, that's the part that makes them want to go back and actually say something because it's that remarkable.
0: A lot of people I'm talking to and a lot of the things that I think are interesting in this sort of new style of distribution, manufacture, audience connection are physical things too. It's like digital is solved. I mean, it's weird to me that the digital tools make the atomic part easier, but that melding is what's happening. I think that's interesting.
2: Yeah, I I would agree 100%. (laughs) (laughs)
0: As you make physical things, I have this message that I think I want to push to these podcasts, which is get big slow. You know, get big, sure, but do it slow. When I look at the accelerated pace of not just Internet companies, but the Kickstarter projects, for instance, or people who come up with some new idea, they get crazy word of mouth and they're destroyed. And I feel like sounds to me, you guys have that same philosophy as you're not. You didn't really want to go out and have a million people knocking on your door all wanting two ounce sample bags because that would. Kill your business, right?
2: Yeah, and and yeah, we we don't we don't celebrate our smallness either. Um, we celebrate the intimacy that we have with every customer, but. That's, that's never going to change. And we do want to get big. We, we absolutely do want to be a big company. How much does scale
0: help you in terms of buying product? Because, you know, we talk, the, there's the whole supply chain of things on the manufacturing side, which is things have changed there, partly because you can communicate more easily. I know when I went in Costa Rica a decade ago, I didn't go to coffee farms, but I was stunned at the spread. Even in the tiny towns, they had enough phone service that people were using it. It was already part of commerce and necessity. I can't imagine what it's like, now even if because of the mobile phone situation in developing nations and a lot of the places you're, you're dealing with with coffee growing are developing nations does that supply chain benefit from this acceleration in communication and, and digital tools
1: definitely yeah i think the last time i was in guatemala i had better cell phone coverage in the northern highlands of guatemala than i usually have in san francisco on at&t <laughs> so um it's <laughs> more important to them than it's to uh, developed nations right you go to places where you know there's no you know running water uh indoor plumbing uh you know reliable electricity but uh people are text messaging everywhere they go and so there's definitely a big change there that on the producer side we we try to avoid talking too much about romanticizing the the farmers and the producers i think you know we saw a lot of that a lot of that was going on in the coffee industry i think over the last 10 years and the reality is is that most of these people that are able to produce really great coffee the traditional kind of commodity market for coffee isn't putting out sustainable prices they're looking for alternative markets for their product and this kind of little niche of the specialty coffee industry that we're a part of has been really moving the ball beyond the kind of dialogues we were having a few years ago about fair trade and pricing and um, and now they're they're turning into real business relationships. Getting, getting to the scale question, I think the systems are in place now that we can move coffee from countries now at a much more boutique scale than was possible a few years ago. That there are importers and exporters and agents on the ground and individual farmers that are becoming a lot more sophisticated about how to manage those kind of relationships that we may only take a small portion of coffee from an individual farm but we have the means to get that back into our hands uh, and so to that end we have a, a, a full-time green coffee buyer on our founding team and it's Ryan Brown who came to us from Stumptown and before that he was uh, the green coffee buyer at Ritual And, and is, uh, is
0: all coffee of all coffee roasting in stores started in Seattle or Portland? I'm a little confused about that <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so isn't one of your competitors in the subscription space, he started, at, he was one of the Zoka folks and uh, another coffee uh, roaster and store in Seattle.
1: Yeah, there, there's definitely, uh, if, you, if you were to sort of, and, and somebody should really do this, but map out the lineages of, uh, <laughs> of all of us nerds who've been in the coffee industry for a decade or so, it's, it, it definitely traces back to like a handful of, of shops Sorry. and experiences
0: we have the secret here in seattle as you well know is that it's is you need coffee to survive because it's gray here like 200 to 250 days a year and without coffee we'd all die so nothing we'd all be lying on the ground paralyzed so <laughs> that's and in portland as well but i'm sorry but i, but I interrupt so green, the green coffee buyer i mean i know many people listening will know what that's about but you're not buying beans roasted somewhere else you're buying beans they're picked they're they're graded or they're sorted and you're getting the bean delivered to you in sort of the form that then you get to go through and choose how you turn that into a Product that can be turned into a cup of coffee.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty much right. Um, so, you know, I mean, every country kind of has different constraints or challenges. Uh, Ryan's actually headed to Ethiopia next, which is you know very different than sourcing coffee in Latin America. And the government's nationalized a lot of the coffee export stuff there, so it's a it's kind of a confusing environment. But he'll go and, and talk to some producers and cooperatives there and taste. Uh, a lot of coffees, and we'll sort of figure out you know what our plan of attack is for getting some top lots uh, into our hands from there. And whereas I think in a lot of cases in Central America, you know, we can just kind of talk to some of these producers on Facebook, um, start to build <laughs> build our relationship pipeline, you know, before we ever set boots on the ground. And we're getting a little ahead of ourselves in terms of the scale that we're at now, but we believe kind of in getting the best in the long-term viability of our business. So you have to build these relationships far in advance of when the coffee comes off the trees.
0: I mean, you can buy coffee in different states and different quantities, I mean, different conditions, I should say, different quantities with a different relationship back to, say, individual farms, right? You can buy sort of, I think of this about, like, with wine, where there's sometimes you're buying wine that was grown in a particular place, and it's the left side of this one field, and the, you know, when the sun hits it a certain way, and the grapes only come from there, where with coffee of the same, or, you know, you can have blended wines, and they may not be better or worse. Sometimes blended wines are very good, but it's a different kind of experience, it's a different kind of connoisseurship, and it, from my reading of it, it sounds like coffee can be the same thing as I could buy, you know, generic coffee and roasted, or I could buy roasted coffee in a generic form as well. Or I can start getting down to I want it from Costa Rica or I want it from this farm or I want this kind of way they're growing it on a particular farm. Does it get down that specifically for your interests of what you want as a product
1: to sell? It definitely does, but there's sort of one big caveat with that and this is sort of the wine analogy gets brought up a lot. It breaks down in a big way with coffee where With wine, you can sort of capture this stuff and perfect it and put it in a bottle. And if you go to the BevMo and you pick up a bottle of this and Wine Spectator wrote some tasting notes about it three months ago, you crack open that bottle and whether you agree with their assessment of it or not, you're pretty much tasting the same thing that they were tasting. Um, And so there's, there's this solidity there that in coffee, it's something so much more slippery and ephemeral that if you taste... That harvest roasted by... You know, one roaster versus another roaster, you might have a very different experience. The freshness of the product out out of the roast makes a difference. How you chose to brew it uh, will have a huge impact. So things get a little slippery when you try to say, you know, that this one sort of hillside on this one farm growing this one particular cultivar has these certain characteristics because Mother Nature can step in and screw that up. Uh, Something can get a little wonky during the processing stages of, of depulping and fermentation and drying where that's going to really alter uh, some of that flavor that's intrinsic to the plants. And then by the time it ends up on a boat and gets to our shore and hits a warehouse and and ends up in the hands of a roaster who may or may not think too much of that coffee uh, before they start experimenting with it, then that experience uh, doesn't necessarily come out the other side in a way that best represents that could have been or what the producer wants for that. And so I think that that's big way that, that coffee differs from wine, and it, it's one of the things that I think makes it... Uh, really challenging to approach because people are looking for they're trying to climb that wall and they're looking for somewhere to get a toe hold <laughs> or a handhold and and so you know you might have this great experience and decide oh my god you know Coffees from Nicaragua, that's like the thing for me. Like I want to drink nothing but Nicaragua coffees. And then you head to another roaster, or you even head to the same roaster on a different day and you pick up another bag of it and you have a a totally different experience that deflates that assumption. So part of our model, it isn't really that we're trying to like give people a variety. We don't consider ourselves a coffee of the month club. It's just that we think that there's kind of this first order thing of any coffee that's naturally sweet, that, that has like beautiful intrinsic flavors, that's balanced, and that's, you know, a lot of kind of thought and care goes into the roasting of it, that if you love coffee, a coffee that kind of hits all those marks, that steps up to the plate and swings and hits the ball, is going to impress you because the batting average at even the better roasters, when you just grab a bag of their beans off the shelf, is pretty dicey. And then the batting average, when you go to the grocery store shelf, is pretty much you're striking out every time there because that coffee's been sitting around for months and months before it ever...
0: This is why Half & Half sells so well, and it's readily available in coffee shops, too. I recorded some audio with my friend Jeff Carlson, who's, who's uh, not a snobby, ridiculous coffee file, but he likes this cup of coffee. Nice pack of beans. A tasty and unique tonk selection from the Sidama region of Ethiopia. Watuna Baltuma. And it, has, it says, packaged on November 4th, 2012. Wrapper with a nice... Oh my gosh, they smell. Very fresh. The beans are kind of like brownish, or like a nice light brown. Oh, they're actually delicious. All right, give me Practically a. Practically like edamame. Oh my God, it's really good. Wow. Not surprising. Coffee beans are not usually... Well, a little bitter at the end because you get the oils come out. Mm. But pretty good from the... It needs to be wrapped in chocolate. Yeah. Well, you have a burr grinder, which is I a do. very important thing because you don't want to grind coffee with a horrible horrible set of blades because then it will taste bad because you will crush it
1: instead of <laughs> being, have all the essential oils in it the bird grinder makes it so that it's it's more of an even uh grind instead of like with a blade you'll have some that are coarse and some that are fine and so
2: that's it.
0: so i'm here with my friend jeff because i used to be a big coffee drinker and i found it makes me kind of strangely jittery and Jeff will testify, you don't actually want to be around me when I've drunk a lot of coffee. It's sort of a dangerous...
1: Glenn has had one uh, one espresso bean so far, and I expect him to go into orbit in about
0: 20 minutes. <clears throat> it's pretty true, so I've come because Jeff has the expertise. He's got the burr grinder, he's got a La Pavone espresso machine. Really get a nice crema on the top of it. All right, this is just...
1: Obligatory steaming sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to put on my recording of background coffee shop noise.
0: Ooh, nice, beautiful. Lots, lots, of good crema there. I don't drink it. it. Smells so good. It's it's got a really strong. It's got a bitter sort of first taste, though. It's like really oh. like a deep base note of um. Like you're kind of like whoa, and then it results in like higher lighter overtones.
1: I may have let uh, a little too much of the crema
0: come come out. Oh, that's a, yeah, it. Yeah, this done. is more even... I get, yeah, you're right. It comes later. When the first cup, I got the bitterness first, mm-hmm. and then the, fruity, the the sweeter stuff.
1: Well, I tried to pull this more stretto, which means you're, you're not letting as much of the crema come down, mm-hmm. because uh, oftentimes the crema adds some of the bitterness, yeah. or, or, or like the last part of the shot.
0: No, that's a much more balanced thing. I feel like it's more like a, a full body through the whole thing with notes mm. on top. It's was really good last, mm. last sip too. That's why we like the only. It needs a little, you have to use a little arm pressure on that. It's got a boiler. You got to push it down to get the pressure up and increase the heat as it goes through the basket. One of the things I want to talk about as we go through all these podcasts is this close relationship with the audience. It's not that you've been entirely disintermediated, but that levels of intermediation have been removed. And for you, it seems important because of the timing as you want to
1: roast this and get this into people's hands. You know, so I've been involved in... Designing coffee bars and and you always try to build something into the experience that you hope because the baristas are really passionate about coffee they want to have a dialogue with customers about it, and people are coming in there to try to figure out what they should be brewing at home how to do it and you always want that to be part of the experience, but you know the reality that most of these shops is that that person who comes in and buys a bag of beans is not the most interesting part of that business operationally they're there to like move a line and sell beverages and you kind of have to get a serious throughput. It's basically a fast food restaurant with a lot of slow food pretenses <laughs> and 99 cent store pricing. It's a tough business. And for us, it, it's like, well, let's, let's try to like get past some of that confusion and, and give people something that's reliable. And it's a bit of a high wire act for us and that there's not a lot of fudge factor. Running a coffee bar, Like you can get away with... Putting out something that's kind of a, a, a C or C minus and brew it up, and people will still come back the next day and, and buy another cup and forgive you not nailing it. And for us, I think we feel like we've set it up where there's trying to build a lot of trust and we want to, we aim to hit a home run every time. And our focus and the simplicity of our business is sort of reinforced by the fact that we can't really afford to, to not impress people with every box that shows up in the, in the <laughs> mail. <laughs> We'll, we'll lose customers if we do that. I want to talk about
0: that that in, in relation to the e-commerce aspect as well, because a more traditional mail-order business, let's say, either one that was started before the internet or several years ago, and you had to get scale. So the idea that you'd send out a small amount and build slowly wasn't it? You have to fund it, you do big direct mail, you do internet, you do social media now, you do everything you can to get a bazillion
2: subscriptions at once. It's all still about distribution channels um, for us, and, and you know it just so happens that we can build our own um by creating the content that we need to and and hitting the right touch points with customers and um and it used to be that you know you just had to go through these these channels that were were kind of predefined and had an upfront cost and you know even now like in advertising the the channels of adwords and facebook and all of those are kind of swamped and and bid it out and because we're small like not a ton of customers need to come through the door in order to make a big difference for us in order for us to hit our goals for the week we can really pick and choose which types of customers we want to focus on and really tailor our pitches and and tailor our outreach and tailor our content to meet the needs of those people and I feel like that's something that you could only do at a large scale before. Now we're fortunate enough to be able to say like, we just need this many customers and then we need to focus on the experience even more before we we go out and get more. Because inevitably when you go big like that, you end up wasting money. And the sooner you do it without perfecting the product that you're actually selling is the more detrimental it is.
0: I should say we've been talking all about the product and what they do, but what they're actually selling is there's a subscription service. You can get uh, every four weeks, pay $24 and get a six-ounce bag every other week, or you can pay $38 and get a 12-ounce bag shipped every other week, and you can get a trial two-ounce-ish bag before you start. And that's sort of the simplicity I like as well, as you don't have 4,000 options on the page. You've got a simple thing contested out or two different offerings. And, I mean, compared to if I were to go to a coffee shop and buy a pound of coffee, I mean, these are 12-ounce bags, I realize I'm going to pay somewhat less, but I'm not going to get the same kind of thing at all. You're, you're offering a premium experience, but you're not charging a you know, crazy amount of money for it.
2: Correct. We we want it to be in line with most other things, and we feel like you're either somebody who drinks coffee every day, and you drink a fair amount of it, and that's you're going to fit into one bucket, or you're somebody who drinks a little bit more casually, and we want to still make our service fit your style of consumption as well crazy question i don't actually know how
0: much unground coffee turns into a typical cup or shot of espresso is it a half an ounce
1: uh it's probably in the neighborhood of uh so i think about two tablespoons if you're just kind of measuring it at home is is Mm -hmm. about right for for six eight ounces of water and a typical shot of espresso like seattle style you're using about 20 grams um so
2: a little bit more than that Mm-hmm. Um, for a shot. We're always trying to make sure that our plans kind of fit what people need. We just actually added a small little feature that allows people to add a, an extra bag for the holidays when they're going home or having guests over. And finding the right balance of, of the amount of coffee that people need is definitely something that we're trying to make sure is perfect.
0: Can you tell me on the credit card charging and collection side? That has changed so much in the last couple of years, I think. Square has transformed the experience and forced other payment processors to deal with in person presentations of a card or in-person card purchases. Have things changed since you're, this is your uh, you know a subsequent e-commerce venture for you? Did you make changes to how you dealt with payment
2: processing versus not very long ago? It's easier to mi- mitigate your own risk these days. Oh, interesting. Tell me about that. Basically, there's so many different services that uh, you can use. It used to be that when you would sign up with a credit card processor, that would be your sole entity that you did business with and if you stored credit cards with them, you would store with them. And if the underwriters decided that you were too risky of a business, then you could get thrown off and you would have 30 days to migrate your entire stack over to something else. And so now there are lots of different layers that you can use that make that easier and that are hot pluggable and have turned the gateway world into more of a commodity.
0: Oh, so you mean it's a mix on the back end. It's easier for you not just to change the mitigation, but even the card uh, processing uh, outfit you work with.
2: Right, exactly. And that's really important, I think, for just as software's gotten a little bit easier and there's more plug and play pieces and it's more accessible because these frameworks are coming out that allow people to learn how to program without needing to buy into a lot of equipment. Similarly, this is letting people get into e-commerce easier. Things like Recurly, things like Spreedly, there are lots of things that allow people to to get up and running very quickly without much cost similar to leasing time in it rather than investing in your own facility that's one part of it the other part of it is we are shifting into this point where people are trying to pay with one type of payment method i mean you have amazon wallet you have you have uh, the app store Um, people are used to storing payment methods and the more they have to manage them the bigger of a pain in the butt it's going to be and as people get into e-commerce now, you have a lot of options in addition to just accepting credit cards that you have to weigh and balance between PayPal, Amazon Wallet, and, and all of the other options that you have. You have more options, and it's easier to get started, and there's also going to be a lot of change to come in the next like five years, ten years.
0: Credit cards are already sort of an unreal thing to begin with, and they're a weird intermediation in the market, and that's being chipped away bit by bit. I mean, even Square, Square is a traditional card processor in some level, but they've changed. The whole nature of how retail and individual merchants, are flea markets, whatever, are working with it, it feels like so much more is about to come.
2: I agree completely. I, I can't wait to see how they change the way business interacts with merchant processors in general, because it's going to take a lot to change that, and I think they're, they're one of the few that has the leverage to do it.
0: Well, I'll end on that not coffee. note. how do you make a business? What's the cost? Where are the pain points? It seems like they've gone away more and more and more. I mean, you mentioned even the server costs, just being able to not have to
2: host your own, have your piece of hardware. That's been a while in coming. It's, it's rare that you can have a coffee company that has redundant servers on both sides of the coast. That, that wasn't possible in the 90s. <laughs> That's
0: right. So we still have the pesky atom part, and we can't 3D print coffee yet, but I'll check back with you on when that possibility comes. We can, you, can, you can brew it there and just send us a molecular diagram to make our own coffee from your model. <laughs> Sounds good. If, if that happens, we'll be there first. Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you, Nick, for joining me on The New Disruptors to talk about your exciting business. Thanks. It was fun. This was The New Disruptors, episode number three, talking to Tony Knexny and Nick Bauman of Tonks Coffee. The New Disruptors is part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net to find this and other fine shows. If you'd like to sponsor this program, visit sponsor.muleradio.net. I'd love your feedback. Send it to newdisruptors at muleradio.net. Our theme music was composed by my dear friend Jeff Tolbert. I'm Glenn Fleischman, and we'll be back next week.